When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. Many of us are surprised, surprised and confused, by the distrust of science, The distrust was especially prominent and aggressively expressed in certain quarters during the COVID pandemic. Today's guest adds to our surprise his ironic observation that the tools that science itself created are partly responsible for the growing distrust of science and scientists. I'm Renee Garfinkel. Welcome back to the Van Leer Institute series on ideas. I'm pleased to have Gary Smith on the show today to talk about his new book, Distrust, Big Data, Data Torturing, and the Assault on Science. If you've been concerned about AI, big data, and our future, this is the show for you. Gary Smith is the Fletcher Jones Professor of Economics at Pomona College. He's also the author of The AI Delusion and the co-author with Jay Cordes of the award-winning book, the Nine Pitfalls of Data Science. Gary Smith, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me, Renee. It's a pleasure to be here. Gary, uh, your hypothesis is that three activities form the attack on science, and they are undermining science using science's own tools. What are the three activities, and what are their tools? Well, I'll name them and then talk about each of them. The first one is the Internet And the second one is something called p-hacking. And the third is something called harking. And so I'll have to explain what those are. Talk about the internet first. Sure. We love the the internet. internet (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) We can't live without it. (laughs) No. Internet goes down and we're lost. Well, it was created by science, of course, for uh, doing scientific research and for sharing data and sharing computers. And it had a noble cause. And then they opened it to the public. And all of a sudden became this uh, swamp of <laughs> disinformation and, uh, as, as I say in Russia, a firehood of falsehoods. And the big social media companies came in and uh, they're, of course, trying to collect all the data they can on us so they can sell us products we don't need. <laughs> and uh, what they found is engagement is important. If they keep you on a website, they can gather more data about you. They can increase the chances that you'll click on a button and you'll buy something. And so they value engagement very highly. And they've learned that what engages people (laughs) is trivia, bullshit, lies, titillation, all sorts of stuff, which is uh, often often completely false. But we're almost addicted to it. And so 
I mean, it's especially true with, uh, I have some teenage kids and uh, a little bit beyond that, but they spend hours a day on this social media, just reading about goofy stories. And it's, it's like an addiction. <laughs> one of my, one of my, one of my sons who's, uh, he's now in his twenties, but he used to play a game when he was in high school where they'd go out to eat and the kids had put their, uh, their phones, their iPhones, their smartphones on the table while they ate. And the first one to pick up the phone had to pay for the food for everyone. <laughs> the game didn't last long. It's just, it's this crazy addiction. Yeah. Well, Seinfeld for them, at least, it's a, at least it's a disincentive to picking up your phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but you can't overcome it. Seinfeld's yeah. got this bit where he's, he's uh, hey, that's your uh, new, you got a new phone there, huh? Can I, can I see it? And you reluctantly hand it to him and he looks at it and you just start getting all this nervous and sweaty. <laughs> I need to have my phone. <laughs> I need to check my phone. It's like breathing. I need to see if I've got any important messages. And it's just, it's just nuts. And so the internet is, is this swamp of disinformation. And a lot of it is unfortunately directed at science. And as you, as you said, in the COVID-19, just so much garbage was out there. And these stories like, Bill Gates created the COVID-19 epidemic so he could create a vaccine that would inject microchips into our bodies so he could monitor us. I mean, just utter nonsense. And people believed it. And you go to you go to read one of those stories and up pop 10 more suggested things you might like. And you get into this little silo where everything you read reinforces the, the BS and you come to believe that's reality. And the people who don't believe the same reality as you well, they're just stupid. <laughs> and, uh, and, okay. And so well, part that's, of the, part, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm no, just saying I, that's, I, that's, that's the, saying, the first thing that's undermined science. That's the science first one, is, disinformation. Yeah. And of course, that's yeah. not unique to science, but it's especially destructive to science. Yeah, um, because, well, I mean, vaccines are great. <laughs> and yet all these people believe they're a nefarious plot by the elite to to enslave us or to kill us or to, who know, to monitor us. Who knows what? And it's just... It's just part of the thing. The second one is p-hacking. So there was this great British statistician, Ronald Fisher. And in the early 1900s, he was working on agricultural experiments. And so they're trying to figure out how to increase crop yields. And so they did these experiments with uh, add a little bit of nitrogen, see what happens. Add a little bit of phosphorus, see what happens. And they did, they did it uh, very smartly. They had one group of plants would not get the treatment. That'd be the control group. And another group of plants would get the treatment. And that was the treatment group. And they observed the differences. And the question was, well, these differences sometimes, if you're a gardener, I'm a gardener, you know, plants don't always grow the same. And so how much of the observed differences could just be due to chance, just the luck of the draw. <clears throat> Some plants happen to be sturdier than others or get a little more water, a little less water, a little more sunshine, a little less sunshine. And how much was, was, was just random variation. And one day <clears throat> at this lab, he made a, a cup of tea for one of his colleagues. And uh, she, he knew she wanted milk with the tea. And so he poured some milk in the, in the teacup and then he added the tea and she refused to drink it. She said, I prefer it the other way around. <laughs> I want the tea in first and then the milk. Right. And, and Fisher thought that was preposterous. And so he challenged her to an experiment. And he prepared eight cups of tea. Four were milk first and four were tea first. And then he challenged her to uh, identify which was which. 
and she got all eight right. And he was astonished. And then he calculated, what's the probability that by guessing alone, you would get all eight right? And it turned out to be one out of 70. And so that seemed like a pretty low probability. And so it seemed like convincing evidence that she really could tell the difference. And then he got thinking about his farm experiments the same way. You take the control plants and the treatment plants, calculate the probability that the observed differences would be as large as, as observed. And if that probability, it's called the p-value, the probability value, if that probability is sufficiently low, then you say, well, it's not chance. There's something systematic going on here, something real. And then the question is, where do you draw the line? One out of 70 seems pretty convincing. What about one out of 50 or one out of 40 or one out of 30 or one out of 20? Where do you draw the line and say, this is statistically significant? And Fisher said, personally, I prefer to draw the line at 5%, one out of 20. And if the p-value is below one out of 20, then I conclude that something real is going on here. It's not just coincidence. And if the p-value is above 0.05, I ignore the results entirely. And Fisher created this whole idea of statistical significance and p-values and so on. And so when he said 5%, that became gospel. And so the scientists who want to get published, they got to get their p-values below 0.05. <laughs> and that's called p-hacking. Do whatever you need to do to get the p-value below 0.05. It's, it's not difficult. By the very nature of the beast, if you only test random theories, one out of 20 is going to have a p-value below 0.05. So all you got to do is do enough tests and you're going to get your p-value down there. And so you start off with some hypothesis. One example I like to use is a paper published in the British Medical Journal. It's called the Baskerville Effect. And it claimed that Asian Americans were susceptible to heart attacks on the fourth day of every month. And the number four is an unlucky number in uh, Chinese and Japanese. And so the claim was that uh, on the fourth day of the month, they would be so scared and, and terrified that they would drop dead of a heart attack. <laughs> it was called the Baskerville effect in allusion to uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's story of the Hound of the Baskerville, where this man with heart disease is chased down a dark alley by a ferocious dog and it falls dead. I mean, it's absolutely preposterous theory. <laughs> we see the number four every day of our lives. We see it in telephone numbers, addresses, books we read. We see it on our keyboard. The fourth day of the month happens well, every month. <laughs> and yet this, he had this, this, uh, this research hypothesis. And so what he had done was it turns out there's a lot of different, more than a dozen different uh, categories of heart disease. And he'd gone through them. And in some categories, there were more deaths on day four. Some categories, there were fewer deaths on day four. And so he threw out the ones with fewer deaths and reported the ones with more deaths and was able to get his p-value below 0.05. And that's, that's p-hacking. And the way you could do it is you start with a research hypothesis, like this silly one. And if it doesn't get your p-value below 0.05, then you add some more data or you discard data or you divide the data by sex, or you divide the data by age, or you divide the data by race, and you just keep doing one thing after another till you get that p-value down below uh, 0.05, and then you report that test, and you don't report all the other tests you tried that didn't work out. And that's not that's considered fraud? 
That is fraud. That <laughs> but, is but fraud. You don't see it. Yeah. You don't see it because all you see is the reported test and you don't know that behind that reported test are hundreds of tests that didn't get reported. And so, so one, one analogy is it's, it's called the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. And there's, there's, there's two variants of it. One of it is p-hacking. I claim that I'm an expert marksman, even though I've never fired a gun in my life. And I'm going to prove it to you. And so what I do is I take a, uh, since I'm a professor, I take a whiteboard and I draw targets all over the board. And then I face it away from the board. I fire the gun behind my back and it hits the board somewhere, <laughs> hits the target. And then I erase all the others. And then I point to the target I hit and say, see, I'm an expert marksman. And if you didn't know that there were hundreds of other targets there, you you might be impressed. And that, that that's p-hacking. And... And well, so let's, science, let's, create, science created this idea that we should have p-values. And then by doing the p-hacking, we're undermining the results that are reported, like that silly study about Asian Americans getting heart attacks on the fourth day of the month. It just undermines the credibility of scientific research. And are professional journals... Um, oh, that was published in the British Medical Journal. I mean, it's, it's are all they sorts of studies. unaware of people doing this? Do they not challenge it? I mean, why do they even publish something I hope we'll get to, junk science, th- which is what yeah. you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, it's, it is junk science. Well, I think there was a time when people didn't realize how bad it was, how big a sin it was. And so one, one person who's a, a critic, as I am, of these kinds of practices said, Everyone did it. It was so much fun. We'd think up these wacky hypotheses. We'd go collect some data. We'd fiddle around with it. Ronald Coase, a Nobel laureate in economics, said, uh, if you torture the data long enough, it will confess. And so you keep fiddling and fiddling until you get a publishable result, and then you you publish it. And he, and this, this, this uh, skeptic said, we knew it was wrong, but we thought it was wrong like jaywalking is wrong. Turns out it's wrong like robbing a bank is wrong. <laughs> in that when you go to try and replicate the study, you get fresh data and try and retest the study, which is normal, of course, in the hard sciences. You set up another experiment to test it. It's harder in the social sciences, but you can do it. When you try to replicate the study, half the time they don't replicate. Half the time you find it was just a coincidence in the first place. And it was just something that was discovered by p-hacking or harking, which I'll get to in a moment. And so the fact that these studies don't replicate is also undermining the credibility of science. And it's especially apparent in medicine, you know, where they say uh, coffee is bad for you. No, actually, coffee is good for you. Chocolate's bad for you. No, actually, dark chocolate's good for you. Wine's bad for you. No, actually, wine is good for you. <laughs> and they come up with these all these things that are bad, or they come up with things that are good, that we can use gastric freezing to get rid of ulcers, which is this silly procedure where they, they stuck a... Uh, ice cold balloon inside your stomach to cure ulcers. <laughs> and when it tried to replicate, they found out it was, it was, it was, it was nonsense. And so the fact that uh, you see these things and then somebody tries to replicate it and it doesn't replicate, it just undermines the credibility of scientific research in the first place. Absolutely right. Uh, and the third. Third activity? one is, is harking. It's harking. Mm-hmm. And so it's H A R K hypothesizing after the results are known. And so it's also known as uh, data mining. And so you have a big set of data and you don't have any particular research hypothesis in mind 
you just want to get a low p-value. <laughs> and you, you let the computer loose and you ransack the data until you find a low p-value. And then you pretend that's what you were looking for in the first place. And so for the Texas sharpshooter analogy, I have a blank board, nothing on it. And I fire my gun, make a bullet hole in the board. And then I paint the target around the bullet hole and pretend that that was what I was aiming at. And so that, that, that is harking, which is hypothesizing after the results are known. I find a low p-value, which isn't hard. Remember, one out of 20 tests give a low p-value. And then once I find one, I make up some theory that fits what I found. So how can those of us, our listeners are um, academics and even uh, and other highly educated, interested people. This is the New Books Network. How can we recognize this kind of junk science or, or flawed or fraud uh, if the professional journals are publishing them? And then, of course, the, the secondary and tertiary popular science promotes it. How can we as readers, consumers of that, separate the wheat from the chaff? Yeah, well, it's become so bad that it's called the uh, replication crisis. And so that uh, so much scientific research doesn't replicate that it's undermining the credibility of science. And so there's one experiment where Brian Nosek assembled a team throughout the country, maybe throughout the world, and they took 100 famous psychology papers and they tried to replicate them, tried to redo the studies. And fewer than half replicated in terms of having a p-value below 0.05 and having an effect in the predicted direction. And one interesting thing was partway through, when they had 41 papers still, to, still to, repl- to test, they set up an auction market where social psychologists could bet on whether the paper would replicate or not. <laughs> and the betting odds based on these bets were that psychologists themselves thought there was about a 50% chance that these famous papers would rep- each of these famous papers would replicate, and it turned out it was fewer than fifty percent. They were they were overly uh, optimistic, but it's it, these these are people in the profession, and they don't trust the stuff being written in their profession. I went I went to a, I was invited to this thing called SIFU at at the Googleplex in in uh, up in Mountain Mountain View, and they talk about a lot of things. And the, the year I went, the replication crisis was on everyone's mind. And there was a guy there from the University of Chicago, a uh, very, very well-known, very famous uh, social psychologist. And he said, my field is the poster child (laughs) for studies that don't replicate. My default assumption is that anything I read in one of the journals of our field is wrong. And you can't get much worse than that. (laughs) When people in the field don't even trust stuff being published in the field. Yeah, but there's one thing. I'm sorry. Well, it's one thing to be skeptical or even extremely skeptical. It's another thing to take the distrust to the level that we see, which is conspiracy theories. Now, you've you've researched them. Um, Well, maybe share with us one of your favorite conspiracy theories (laughs) and, and who's likely to believe them. I it's it's hard to say why people I actually. I'm I don't know, embarrassed or whatever. I, I have friends and relatives who believe some of these conspiracy theories and just trying to think in my mind, these, these are not unintelligent people. Why do they believe this stuff? And 
I, I just don't know. And so like one of the most famous ones, of course, one of the relatively uh, unharmful ones is like 20% of Americans, 20% of British, 20% of Russians don't believe that we've ever been to the moon. They think the moon landings were faked, that they were shot in a Disney studio and it was a big hoax played, played on the public. And why do people believe this stuff? And I think it's, they're not completely happy with their lives. They're frustrated with the way their lives are going on and they, you know, their job or their, their family or their health, whatever it is. And they don't want to take the blame themselves. You know, I don't exercise enough. I don't work hard enough in my job. I didn't work hard enough in my family. And so they want to blame it on others. And so they blame it on this mysterious elites, <laughs> the elites that control our lives. And it's that Federal Reserve. It's the uh, federal government. It's the top business executives. They are doing these things to us. Bill Gates is out there to <laughs> put microchips in our bodies. And the Federal Reserve is creating recessions so they can gain global control. It's just the stuff. I think it's because we're looking to place the blame outside ourselves. And so it's easier to blame others than it is to look inward and say, what are, what are we doing? What could we do better? And so okay, it's easier so to say. If distrust of science is part of the distrust of elites and of government, yeah, yeah. do the people who distrust science also distrust every other authority, the church, public school I teachers, so. the think, army? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I can, I can say it, you know, you're, you're based in Israel, but of course the Jews are the, are the target of a lot of this distrust stuff. And so George Soros and the, the elders of Zion and, and a lot of these conspiracy theories revolve around uh, Jews trying to control the world and others revolve around. <laughs> there's, there's millions of Americans who believe that the government is run by alien <laughs> reptilians. <laughs> And it's funny, except that it's not funny. And so it's it's like this giant conspiracy of the people who are really smart, the people who have really good jobs, the people who run the government, the people who run the Federal Reserve, the people who run the World Bank, the people who run these things. They're all part of this uh, elite conspiracy to suppress the masses. And uh, of course, as you know, in our country, that, that resonates with a fair number of voters yeah, so. yeah. Well, um, a recent study uh, out of Emory University, and this was now I'm now I'm a little reluctant to quote a study. It was a meta analysis of 170 studies in the U.S., U.K., and Poland, and it suggested the authors suggested that there are three motivations for believing in conspiracy theories. Uh, one was a need to understand. The other was a need to feel safe in their environment. And the need to feel that the community with which they identify is superior. Now, when I read that, I thought... Your, your okay, voice is breaking up on me here. Everybody wants to feel safe. I mean, that's really a very fundamental human need. Uh, it, uh, lots of people want and have a need to understand. There would be no scientists if we didn't have an, a need to understand. And I wasn't sure what what they meant by a need to feel that the community they identify with is superior. Do, does this uh, does this resonate with your work? That, does that, this the, sound that, right? that one does. The first one need to understand. <laughs> I don't know. You say the MMR vaccine causes autism, or the COVID nineteen vaccine is a nefarious plot. I don't know. I wouldn't put that in the category of need to understand. It seems like need to not understand. Well, but, it's an explanation. 
it's an explanation. Why, why is my <laughs> child autistic? <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's a, those vaccines yeah. the, the government's right. given us. The uh, second one, it, it resonates very highly. And so we talked before about the social media and how you get into these bubbles. They're called filter bubbles or these silos where everything you see supports your worldview and uh, things that don't support your worldview, arguments against it you never see. And you know there are people out there who believe different things, but it's because they're stupid or they're the enemy or something something's wrong with them. And so you get into this community where it's us against them. And the social media with the, with the filter bubbles and, and the silos reinforces that idea that it's us versus them. We are different than them. And, and they don't talk to each other. And so I get, I'm making this up because I, I don't get it, but I get a, I see, I watch a video, a new video about how the moon landings were fake. And so I share it with all my friends who believe the same thing. And uh, they see videos the same, they share them with me. And we're all in this little group together that we know that the moon landings were fake. And uh, it's just a conspiracy by the government to uh, make science seem better than it really is. And uh, people who don't agree with us, well, that's there's something wrong with them, not with us. It's not, it's not us, it's them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, so uh, how do you think that the increasing sophistication of artificial intelligence, such as uh, ChatGPT, uh, whatever version we're up to now, how, how will all this impact the distrust of science? We're up, we're up to number four now. The uh, GPT four. The I've been a I've been a big skeptic of all the all, they're called large language models LLMs, and so what they do is they uh, sift through unimaginable amounts of text and they find statistical patterns and they predict words that follow other words. And it's just astonishing that they can put together coherent uh, sentences, answers, paragraphs, essays. It is just absolutely astonishing. But the fatal weakness is they don't understand anything <laughs> that they're spewing. And so sometimes they will say things that are true Sometimes they'll say things that are false. It's, it's so common, it's called hallucinating, which is giving them human-like attributes. I wouldn't, so I don't use that word. But they say things like, this has been going on for a while, and they haven't corrected it yet. Even the human handlers haven't corrected it. You ask them, how many bears have the Russians sent into space? And they'll come back with an answer like three or seven or 12 or 51. And they'll give you the names of the bears. And they'll give you the dates that they were sent into space. And you ask for references. And they'll refer to a New York Times story or a National Geographic story or a uh, NPR uh, story. And it's all made up. The Russians never sent any bears into space. There weren't any dates. There weren't any names. Those articles that it cites are totally made up. And because it doesn't know better, it doesn't know what words mean. And so it doesn't know the difference between truth and falsity. And so that is the problem with AI in terms of what we've been talking about here, artificial intelligence programs are really, really good at harking, which is also known as data mining. And so they're really, really good at finding statistical patterns in data. But they have absolutely no way of discerning whether those statistical patterns make sense or not, because they don't literally do not know what words mean. And you put it inside a black box, and there's no way for us to judge why they come back and they say, this person ought to be in prison. This person ought to be given a job. 
this person should not be given a job. You should buy Apple stock. <laughs> you know, it comes back with these recommendations and is based on some black box algorithm based on statistical patterns, which we have no idea what they are because they're in a black box. And the program has no idea what they are. They just know that there is a statistical correlation between this and that. And so they come up with this garbage. And so AI is actually making the problem worse, not better. And do you think the scientific community is being careful about it? or No. no. <laughs> well, there's, there's so much money to be made. And we're in the midst now of this you know, chat GPT is just so, have you, have you played with chat GPT? Oh yes, of course I have. Yeah. And, it's just uh, astonishing. To, it's like talking to a human, right? It, it's a anthropomorphization that we feel like we're talking to a real human being an Eliza effect. And so all these people are rushing out there to do startup companies. We're going to make a bunch of money with this AI or existing companies are saying our products are going to be better because now we're using AI and, I just read an article today about how disillusionment is setting in, that all these companies have got the AI and they try it and it doesn't actually do much, much of anything at all. What it's really good at is spreading disinformation because they can, you want to write a false story about Joe Biden or Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or Israel or Great Britain or Ukraine or Russia or whatever. You ask ChatGPT to write a fake story and it'll write a thousand fake stories in the blink of an eye. And then you can just flood the internet with this firehood of falsehoods. And it's really, really good at that. Or you want to shame somebody. There's somebody you don't like. And so you create some phony story and uh, lots of variations of it. And you flood the internet with that. There was an example just a couple months ago where there was this law professor. And uh, the story went on the internet that he had been uh, accused of sexual harassment. And the story had been written up in the Washington Post that he'd taken his students on some field trip and he'd sexually harassed one of the students and he was being fired, I believe. And he found out the story and absolutely none of it was true. There was no story in the Washington Post. He had never taken any students on a field trip. He had not been accused of sexual harassment, but it was just out there. And uh, I don't know if it was malicious that somebody was trying to, somebody didn't like him and was trying to embarrass him or it was just a coincidence, like the Russian, the Russians sending bears into space or something. But you can use you can use these AI for that, which is not good. That's, that's not good. No, or it's act, it. actually terrifying. Really, it's, it's terrible. And, yeah. and you can also use it for scamming. They've got these algorithms now, which it let, <laughs> here we are talking. They can take you know a few seconds of our talking, and they can create voices that sound like us. And right. if we were doing videos here, they could create images that look like us and yeah. they can create either visual or audio things, phone calls or social media with, with videos that look like us telling our relatives, our friends, maybe our grandparents, they were in deep financial trouble. We need money for some purpose. Please wire it to this address. And it looks and sounds just like us, but it's not us. It is, it's a deep fake. And it's artificial intelligence has created an image that looks like us and a voice that sounds like us. And if you weren't wary, you might, might think it's us. In this Ukrainian war, there was an incident where, I can't remember, it was, it was the prime minister of, might've been Germany, might've been another country, but they got this phone call and they were talking to this person who they thought was Zelensky, the head of Ukraine. And then it started asking questions about, uh, whether Ukrainian refugees were causing trouble in the country and they became suspicious 
And then it turned out it was a deep fake. It wasn't Zelensky at all. It was some AI-created voice made to imitate him and to make phone calls to world leaders to spread distrust. Wow. <laughs> and Finally, it's, it's, Gary, absolutely, it's absolutely terrifying. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> Uh, uh, finally, um, your book also includes suggestions for improving the situation. So let's talk about one of them. Uh, tell us about how the internet should be regulated more the, like the way banks are with know your customer regulations. Yeah, and so I don't, how that would help. Yeah, and so a lot of the stuff on the internet right now is not actually created by humans. It's created by these AI things. And there's some estimates that up to 60% of the stuff you see on the internet and through social media is not humans. It's these, these called bots, like a robot. And uh, it's just fake stuff. And I mean, the only good thing that could come of it is, <laughs> but it has to be 90%. Maybe people stop believing what's on the internet. But in the meantime, you know, these, these tech companies, they can they can they can figure out uh, what things you like, what kind of movies you like. They can figure out uh, all sorts of stuff about you. They ought to be able to figure out whether this is a real person or a bot. And an easy way to do that is just set up, like you say, with a bank account. Before you can get a Twitter, what's called X now, before you get a Twitter X account or a Facebook account or any kind of internet social media account, you got to prove that you really are a person. <laughs> and so you got to present something, you know, a passport, a, uh, some kind of proof, a uh, telephone number they can call back and talk to you, a email address they can call back and talk to you, and prove you really are a person before you're allowed access to the internet. And just like you need a license to drive, you should, be, you should, use, you should need a license to use the internet. Another the thing, I mean, oh, oh, go ahead. Please. No, you go ahead. Another What's thing another is, is a lot of the harm being created by social media is with young people who are yeah. very impressionable. They're trying to fit in. They're trying to be popular and uh, they're getting shamed and embarrassed and some of them even commit suicide. And I think they could raise the age where you don't have internet access until you're whatever, 18, 21, something like that. You know, you need a certain age limit before you can vote, before you can fight in the military, before you can drive a car. Maybe you should have a minimum age before you have access to social media. Yeah, it's dangerous. Yeah, it is dangerous. And study after study has shown the dangers being done to young people, to their self-esteem, to their confidence. And right, right. Well, I'm glad you wrote the book. The book is <laughs> Distrust: Big Data, Data Torturing, and the Assault on Science. Thanks so much for talking with me about it today, Gary. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Renee. It was great fun. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov.